Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guest's life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. For our series finale of the Radio Times podcast, we are recording live at the PPA Festival. <laughs> Sitting across from me on the Radio Times sofa is the British actor and author, Richard Armitage. Richard really needs no introduction, and to be honest, his career has such depth and variety that it is really hard to summarise briefly. He made a name for himself as John Thornton in the BBC series North and South, and what has followed has been a glorious career on the British TV scene as well as internationally, especially since his role as Thorin Oakenshield in Peter Jackson's The Hobbit. Currently, though, he's the talk of the town with his role in Netflix's erotic thriller Obsession. Richard, hello. Hi, I love that you're calling this a sofa. <laughs> it's like a... Yeah, also, I forgot there's cameras on, so... <laughs> Now I'm just a liar. It's a sofa. It's now a sofa. Here we go. <laughs> okay, let's worry less about this sofa and tell me about your sofa at home. <laughs> you like my segue, then? <laughs> segue. What's the view from your sofa at home? Um, I can't tell you that because otherwise you'd be able to figure out exactly where I live. <laughs> so, Which is just now really creepy. Yes, I have. I. It's actually not a sofa. I sit often in a in a, a an Ames chair. Um, which has a sort of 360-degree view of London, but I'm not going to tell you which view. Okay. No TV. It's where I write. Yeah, there's a TV somewhere, but it doesn't, it doesn't get switched on that often. I was going to say. Yeah. So, okay, so you write most it's of It's a time. writing and a thinking and a learning lines chair. A learning lines chair? Absolutely. Lots of lines to learn. Lots of lines. If you do turn on your telly on the odd occasion, what do you watch? For kind of bingeability, I think most recently I've been watching Bad Sisters. Uh, okay. I've got 
kind of friends and acquaintances in that. And I'm a massive fan of Sharon Horgan. So that's been kind of high up on my list. Uh, for, for guilty pleasure and a little bit of escapism, I'm, I'm very fond of a baking show. Uh, I like a bit of interior design. I love Dragon's Den. I like things where people do creative things in a kind of celebratory way. So yeah. those are the things that I really And enjoy. to be fair, those formats are now everywhere because they seem to bring in the audiences. Yeah. When you work in the industry and you obviously have lots of lots of friends who are actors, do you then feel obliged to watch their shows? Um, yes, if you don't want to lie and pretend that you have and <laughs> smile and say, yeah, I love that bit with the dog. And they're like, there is no dog. There's no uh, dog. So yeah, I, I no. It, it also out of, because you're going to go work with them as well often, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, we all try to support each other. And we, yeah. we watch each other's work. Yeah. Okay. What's your telly turn off? I don't really have a turn off. I don't think. Maybe you can hate <laughs> me for saying this. I think after after maybe two and a half years of Middle Earth, I'm I'm not drawn to fantasy so much anymore. Completely. So not. I've I've seen there. I've I've done it. It's not my thing. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, snack and drink of choice whilst watching telly. Um, it will probably be a, a glass of champagne uh, <laughs> and some salted peanuts. Very relatable. Is that, is I like dangerous? It. No, that's completely fine. Chocolate-covered salted peanuts. Nice. Nice. Nice, lovely. Okay, so next part of the chat is we go back to your childhood and we see it through the lens of TV. So what's your first ever TV memory? Should I be on, like, the therapist's couch? Yeah. <laughs> um, my, I think my first ever TV memory might have been crossroads motel for atv um it was something my mom was into and i would just sit there and watch it with her so the the recent itv uh, version nolly with helena bonham carter i watched that and just thought this is my childhood and actually i went to see that production of gypsy that she was in at the leicester haymarket that was also my first experience of theater and seeing a massive star on stage and so yeah that whole series for me really kind of encapsulated something from my childhood when did you get the idea that you wanted to be an actor? Um, I think quite late, actually. I'd moved into musical theatre because I'd, I'd gone to tap dancing classes when I was sort of really young and then pursued that um, at a vocational school in Coventry. So I'd kind of covered all aspects of singing and dancing and music and I'd, I'd moved into musical theatre. But it came to me much later when I was about 23, I realized I wasn't quite in the right place for what my temperament was. So I went back to train at Lambda and took a classical acting course because I, I knew that I was very sure then of what I really did want to do and what wasn't right for me. Yeah, because I read that at one point you decided or when you were working in theatre that you saw that lots of people who were getting the leading roles or the people that were bringing names to the theatre were big names and so was that when you decided to kind of venture into TV? Not really it was more to do with the kind of gregarious nature required of a musical theatre performer and they are a certain breed they just have this incredible ability to entertain and I just didn't feel like that I felt a little bit like an introvert doing an impression of an extrovert. So I wanted to kind of go and become somebody that would sort of move into the skin of another person and experience worlds belonging to other people rather than putting myself out there. Um, so that was more than the line. How did you break into it? So what I always find interesting over the course of doing these conversations is you'll have someone like Dame Emma Thompson saying, oh yeah, you know, like for me, I always get the fear that the phone's going to stop ringing. So how did you, when you first break into it, did you ever have kind of a backup plan or 
an idea to do, you know, a side hustle, something to supplement it? I mean, I never, I never knew that I was breaking in. I, I, the first jobs that I would get, you know, I would sort of thumb through the, the pages of the stage newspaper looking for open auditions and go and line up outside. But I had to join the line, which was people without equity cards because I didn't have an equity card. So you slowly start to build a path, which was get an equity card. So I went to work in the circus in Budapest to get an equity card. And then, you know, after five years of auditioning for Cats, for example, I ended up getting a tour of that playing um, a swing and, and it builds from there. Um, but it was that you're always hustling. You're always, you know, even now you're still fighting for work, you know, going to prove yourself, putting yourself on tape, whatever it is. And, and I, I do think that earning the role is is something which it's quite special when you get that phone call that yeah. says you know it, it, it's yours and you've, you've you've earned it i don't think that ever goes away and you still feel like that now to some extent i do and the older you get you start to um as your world starts to narrow because the industry is a largely a young person's sport it's you know the opportunities start to narrow but my creativity has grown so my my brain and my my yearning and my reach has moved into other aspects. So over the course of your career, you've also done series and, and slightly longer projects. And I wonder if that ever changes what you choose next. You know, do you ever get the fear of signing on for something so long in case, you know, you no longer find it engaging or interesting? Or are you always attracted to something with longevity because it's it's some kind of stability? Uh, both. And I love the fact that you said what you choose next, <laughs> because there is a misconception that, we, that actors are very able to pick and choose what they want to do. And I would say 98% of the work that I'm offered, I say yes to. Nice. Um, I, there are scripts that I feel aren't right for me, but, but I, um, I don't, I've never bothered about typecasting and I've, I've always really enjoyed series that I've spent a long time in, although I've never been in a series longer than three seasons. But I would like to experience a, a really long-running show where you get to build a character over, you know, seven or eight seasons. And actually, that's something that I'm actively developing at the moment and looking for as a producer. Is is uh, I, all of the projects that I have are kind of there's a ten or eleven books involved. So I'm like, this could be a long runner. So that's why I'm. This could be me. This could be me. This could be me. Full stop. Let's go back to. Uh, the kind of beginning of your career and in 2004 you landed the leading role of John Thornton in BBC's North and South. How did that experience shape your career? And I'm thinking about it through the lens of, of also kind of coverage because when you get catapulted into kind of uh, national or global consciousness at any point and especially in your, in your first big role where people maybe are approaching you on the street or recognize you, what was that like? And then also what was that like from not only a career perspective, but in terms of the fame? Um, well, none of those things happened that you described. I think <laughs> it's a perception of it happening, but there is, um, I think maybe if we were, if that was happening now, it would have probably gone to a streaming platform and it right. had a much broader audience, but it was BBC and BBC only. There was no social media at the time. Um, there was no plans for a DVD. So the only time I ever really knew that the show had been successful was when my agent called and said, oh, the BBC are planning to release a DVD. So I thought, oh, we, we must have done something right. Um, and then the, the measure of, of its success was because then the BBC hired me again to do Robin Hood and then hired me again to do Spooks. So I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, the show must have been successful for them. 
Um, but in terms of recognition on the street, that that didn't really happen. Okay. And I guess because I don't walk around with a massive top hat on <laughs> yeah. all the time. It's very true. Well, to be honest, when you said we were doing this chat, and this is going to sound very ignorant, I was when I was no idea who I was. <laughs> Of course not. Um, Guy of Gisborne, Robin Hood, that was my era. Horses outside. <laughs> I also couldn't believe that you were in The Hobbit. The prosthetics, I was like, no, this is not the same man. I wonder now, even more so with the increase in social media, and like you say, I wonder if over the course of your career, media coverage has changed. Because before, perhaps you could do profiles or you could have uh, articles written about you reviews of your of your work but now with the increase of social media the gap between you and your fans of which they are you know that you have a very loyal fan following if that shifted and if it feels weird that now the kind of coverage comes also from you not just at arm's length yes um took me a very long time to embrace social media i remember being part of a review panel for something Mark Gattis was on the panel and they were talking about Twitter and I was like, what's Twitter? And he sort of nearly spat his coffee out. <laughs> clearly he was involved in it and I wasn't. And I felt like I, it, I, didn't, I wasn't sure that it was for me because I, um, I don't particularly like talking about myself. Um, I like talking about the work that I'm doing. Um, but, it, but of course, um, you move with the times and it becomes a contractual obligation to use social media to promote the thing that you're doing. So... I did it all, um, but I do see it as a professional tool. It, to me, it's like um, it's a billboard, really, for the work that I'm doing. So um, I don't spend a lot of time on there posting a lot or reading a lot or commenting a lot. I, I pop in, say what I'm doing, and then, and then leave. Because, you know, I've spent half my life without it. So I, don't, I also don't think it's necessarily for me. I don't, think, I don't think reviews are written for me to read, so I don't read them. I think commentary is not necessarily for my ears either. You know, this is just so that people can discuss things they like together. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I step out of the room kind of thing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. 
So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Yeah, let's talk about international success because even though you say that, I guess maybe after your appearance in The Hobbit, if that maybe that's changed as well. Maybe that changed the game. I, I don't just mean that from a media perspective, but it, as in from you on an international basis, if the work feels different, if when you turn up and you're working on a set like that, that must feel so different to the BBC, like a BBC drama. Yeah. And it's quite intimidating. You know, when, when you go into a massive machine like that, mm. uh, with, with such a legacy of, of kind of all the Oscars that the, the Lord of the Rings won and the kind of buzz around it, it was quite terrifying. And for a long time, I just, struggled with actually who I was in this world. Yeah. And you're sitting down for dinner with Peter Jackson and Philippa and Fran and the heads of Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema. And I'm like, I don't belong here. But then, of course, you, my, my thing is I, I just got my head down and got on with the job mm. as best as I could and just leave the rest to other people. But somebody recently in an interview said to me, it must have felt like the world was your oyster. And it, it never did, actually, because... What I what I responded was was maybe it did, but the oyster is slowly closing because it is for every for every actor on the ascent, you're always then going to be descending. Uh, the phone is not going to bring quite so much, Dame Emma Thompson. <laughs> Probably for her, it's okay. Um, but so yeah, I, I was uh, I just you know pinched myself frequently and never quite believed all of the hype. But uh, but you know I I loved playing that role, and it was a book that I'd read as a child over and over and over and so um it was a big deal for me and i never so you know i'll always cherish it i think as well when you land a role like that was it also important to question what you wanted to do next because i'm sure you maybe get scripts that aren't maybe where you wanted to go as an actor yes there there's often uh there's often a kind of commercial push which is like this is going to make loads of money this is going to have a mm. big profile but i can honestly say i've never taken a job based on money. I've always taken a job because I wanted to do the work or there was somebody that I wanted to work with or this was a character I really wanted to play. I'm always a little bit surprised that I get paid for it anyway. I always think, how you know, I can't believe you're getting paid to do this thing that you love. So I think that's really helped me is not focusing on finances ever. I leave that to other people. Yeah, and then after that, you did return to theatre and that saw the kind of unprecedented five stars which even when you watch the trailer, it comes through. Um, it's it's incredible. So that was for The Crucible. Did that then feel like you'd kind of made it with that expectation of one day doing more theatre? Yes, and it's, it was a regret that I'd had that I had been very focused on television and I wish I'd done a play every year, but I hadn't. It had been about 10 years since I'd been spear-carrying at the RSC and people had known me from television, but theatre was where I began and it was where my heart was really so there was there was quite a high bar. People had an expectation. So I, I really had to, and I didn't know what I was capable of on stage anymore. Because mm. you lose track. You don't know if you, you're vocally prepared or if you can repeat that high emotional kind of graph every night. But it was uh, it was quite extraordinary. And, and Yael Faber and I are still in conversation about working together again on something. Yeah. I always wonder when I, you know, there's lots of uh, shows on at the moment with really, really big names in the West End. And I wonder how it does actually feel to go and to commit. So I saw A Little Life. I don't know if you've seen it um, on at the Harold Pinter at the moment. 
and it's got James Norton in and Amari Douglas. And it was stunning, but I thought, how on earth could you come in and deliver this night after night after night for a 12-week run, say? Does that not become physically exhausting? Yeah, it does. And, and that's what the rehearsal room is all about, is really priming yourself for repetition, building up your stamina to, to do eight shows a week at that level of vocal capacity, emotional capacity, which is why it is quite difficult for people that haven't kind of got a, a history of theatre practice or been through a, an institution that trains you. To step in and do that is, is a big ask. And, and apart from stage fright, just the technical ability to mm. compete in that way is, is quite a mountain to climb. And I, I got to the end of the 12-week run of The Crucible and I, I felt like I couldn't have done another single performance of it. Yeah. I was sort of on my knees. The other thing that I think is um, objectively a, a perk of your job is the travel. So you've you've got to go some some gorgeous places. And actors are kind of traditionally more nomadic than normal, the, the average Joe. Yeah. Um, you get to see a lot more of the world. Where have you been that has really left its mark? And, and do you actually even get to explore the area? Yeah. So so when I, when I said I don't look at the financial benefits of the job... It, <laughs> The older I get, I, when, when something comes through, the, one of the first things I say is, where's it being shot? Because it can be the most delightful surprise. I, I mean, I recently, well, not recently, last year I shot, was it last year? The year before, maybe. I shot in Seville and Madrid and Rome. And one of the big bonuses of that job was I get to go to these places. Mm. You know, I got to shoot a, a kind of very expensive science fiction film in South Korea. When it was expensive for South Korea, you know, it was like the Star Wars of, of Korean cinema. Um, so I got to travel to a place that I would never have gone to, probably. And it, what's more exciting is you get to go to the place, you meet the crew, sometimes you meet their family, you really learn about them culturally, and you, you sort of build your own little family around them. So that cultural exchange permeates the work that we do. I, I was recently at Sadler's Wells, at the weekend watching a dance show, Netherlands Dance Theatre, and I looked at the cast that they'd assembled and they were from all over the world. And it just made me think about the arts and how we're one of those few industries that really does connect culturally with anybody from anywhere and any place. And that exchange is what makes it one of the best professions in the world. I yeah. Think. I think we're even seeing that even more just from a viewer's perspective with streaming and, and with the growth of that, how much access we have to um, TV shows and series and movies created by other other people globally. That, you know, I'm thinking of like Lupin, Call My Agent. There's been such a boom in what we're seeing. Money heist, personal yeah. plug, because I no, love it's, it's it. a myth. It's a myth that people from South Korea didn't want to watch stories about Americans, and people from South America didn't want to watch stories about Scandinavians. Mm. That the streaming platforms have absolutely blown away that yeah. myth. We are so curious about each other's stories. Thank goodness. Yeah. And all of those shows have a, have a place, which I think is brilliant. Let's uh, talk about a show that is currently on Netflix, Obsession. So uh, the first question that I'll ask you is, you said in a Radio Times interview about the show, you said that someone had asked you when you'd signed up for it, is this a temperature you're comfortable with? And you said, bring it on, let's not be British about this. Prudishness is not cool. The French and how they look and present their body. How did this show challenge you as an actor? And did you have any hesitations about what you were going to be required to do? Well, first of all, with regards to that quote, I was, I was actually talking about myself because I had that conversation with myself. It certainly wasn't a challenge to people 
to let go of their conservatism because I don't believe in the show is going to push a boundary, but I, I don't, I wouldn't want anyone to it's watch it. It's more for you as yeah, an actor. It was for me to sort of feel, you know, to be a little bit more European. And actually I was interviewed on the day of its release by an Italian journalist. Who, I've, I've forgotten her name, but she, she asked me that question. And then at the end of my answer, she said, I would never have asked that of an Italian. And I said, why? And she said, because we're just more at ease with ourselves. Yeah. And I, I felt a bit disappointed that w the British are perceived as being somehow uptight when I don't think we are. Um, yeah. And in a way, this is an expression of how, how kind of relaxed we are or could be. But of, but of course, the, the challenges of this show are not really about the kind of physical exposure. It's about the kind of depths that these characters are kind of reaching for. Yeah. I, I know the perception of the show is all about the nudity, but that was just a byproduct of, of the character's journey, really. Does that bother you? I mean, it is really interesting because the conversations often, if it's a show with intimacy, do revolve around or, or largely discuss nudity, on-screen intimacy, intimacy coordinators. I think perhaps it's a byproduct of the world that we live in, in the sense that it hasn't always been something we've discussed. And then now that we've lifted a lid on a lot of the kind of experiences of actors pre-Me Too, for example... Do you think that's why we have a kind of fascination with it? I think we're always fascinated w with what other people do in private. And that was one of the things that, that I had to keep reiterating is that there was, again, a perception of these characters that they were somehow performing, but th they're both in absolute privacy, in secrecy. We, as viewers, we're looking through the keyhole. Mm. And there is a version of obsession where, you know, William steps into Anna's world and she undresses him and the door slowly closes. And we never see what happens behind that door. But I think it would have been a sort of blunter instrument. You know, we needed the blade of, of what was happening between them to fully understand what's going on. But in terms of intimacy coordination, I mean, the, that's the very technical early yeah. stage of breaking down a script like that. And we went back to the source material of Josephine Hart's novel, which I believe was quite controversial in the late 80s. And it's it's extremely graphic in places. And, and we we were less graphic than Josephine Hart was. And Morgan Lloyd Malcolm wanted to open up the story, so we got much more of Anna's perspective. So we, kn we knew that there was a kind of uh, path that we were going to be treading, which was like walking on hot coals. So it had to be dealt with um, so that both actors were comfortable and that we could inhabit William and Anna fully without yeah. any inhibition. And the way that the intimacy coordinator helped us to do that was we always referred to ourselves as William and Anna and these are William's arms and William's hands, and this is Anna's body. So we, the navigation was about, so can William touch Anna's breast? Can William touch her back? So it, it, was, it relinquished the responsibility, but it also put, we were put into the hands of the writer, yeah. the director, uh, the author, the source material. We, we belong to them. And it's what I believe about acting is we are vessels that carry other people's stories. Story. With that though, I guess, the relationship that you'll have with Charlie, who plays Anna, you must have to have this kind of safety and security and this trust because you are asking yourselves to do or or even, you know, even acting on a separate note, there is a vulnerability there because you're playing. But with a script like this, which relies so heavily on on-screen chemistry, and obviously that comes off, it's why the show's so successful. How does that impact your relationship with her? It's a bit chicken and egg because you sort of hope that you have chemistry with the person because you want them to feel good about themselves and you want them to feel comfortable and you want that chemistry to permeate on screen. But it's not an absolute. You know, sometimes 
chemistry can work from an, uh, a sort of negative place. So two people that dislike each other can create chemistry on screen, which is odd. And I, you know, I've never had it because I generally like people <laughs> and, and I see the best in them. But but you know, Charlie and I got on really well. It was we did have a lot of rehearsal time, and we both kind of navigated it. We're very open with each other, and we talked, you know, about all kinds of things, figuring out what we were comfortable with. I kind of plotted her sense of humor from day one, so we spent a lot of time laughing. So all, and I, I do remember saying to her, "Look, this is such a kind of crucial part of the spine of the story. I don't want to do these intimacy scenes, wishing them away and thinking, thank God that's over.'" Because we, you know, you're going to wish the job away, and I wanted to, you know, embrace it and make the most of it. And she agreed with me. So we really kind of approached it like two dancers, two sort of pieces of marble being sculpted, and sort of tried to tell that story uh, in that way. Um, but of course, it's not uh, it's not a celebration of of uh, infidelity. That's the other thing is that we, we're talking in these terms because the actors want to be comfortable with each other but the characters are in a, a, a place of extreme discomfort mm. at many at many points what do you think you after doing it and after watching it have, have you seen the whole no, thing i haven't seen any of it do you watch yourself back no no i saw i did see you look a little uncomfortable when the trailer was on looking somebody walked out That's how <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i don't watch they've, they've missed out on. The i don't need story. to i was there on the day i saw her face yeah. i i lived it i don't need to watch it played back after the project what did you feel that that show taught you about obsession love lust because i came away with so many mixed feelings about yes, it that's good and i couldn't grapple with are they right are they wrong who's right who's wrong should i'm not going to give any more spoilers i'm sorry i'll stop talking yes it's it's very difficult it's a difficult complicated piece of work because neither of the characters uh seem to find any redemption for what they've done I see it in a way that Anna is like a furnace that William just cannot help but put his hand into. And, there, you know, his descent is extreme to the point where, you know, that there's a scene in a hotel room which is described very graphically by Josephine Hart. And to me, it was like the base of his despair. He's like a drug addict scrabbling around in an alleyway looking for dirty needles for that last hit of heroin suffocating on her smell and so so to me that was you know a huge uh, fall from grace from a man that was a pillar of society mm. had the perfect life so in a way the story is a little bit of a warning of obsession yeah and but at the same time we you lean into the characters and think i i don't know whether i've ever felt like that about somebody that i would be prepared to shatter my life yeah and then at the end say he would do it all over again. It's it's kind of unfathomable to me. And I yeah. tried not to judge William for it. I just played the role. <laughs> okay, before we finish up, let's talk about what's next for you. I know that you, you've got a book coming out. So let's talk about that. And, and has writing been for you, as well as kind of producing and looking at other projects? Is that part of that fear about the phone call? not ringing a little bit but but actually the art of reinvention uh is a little bit <laughs> Very in nice. that territory and also actually going back to what you said about social media and journalism in general i was invited to write something by audible which is you can listen to it now but it's going to print in october and i jumped at the chance because i thought here i get to tell a story in my own words i get to represent myself entirely in my own words so the book is called geneva 
Um, it's completely fictional, but but there are threads of my own personal experience running through it. And I'm, I'm starting work on a second book, which will be sometime in 2024, called The Cut. And just to tease a little bit of what that's about, there's three definitions of The Cut. One of them is a, a wound that bleeds. The other is a secret alleyway. And the third is what a director does with a film. And all of those elements will play into this new story. And I think the new story is possibly far more personal than, than the first book. But it, it's a chance for me to tell a bit of my, myself through the, through the uh, lens of fiction. You're a very, very busy man. Lucky. Lucky, lucky to be wanted. Yeah, huh? lucky. Pays the bills. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this series of the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. I am so thankful to you, the listeners, for tuning in each and every week. We couldn't do it without you. We hope you've enjoyed this series and listening to everyone from Chris and Rosie Ramsey, who I'm sure you can agree made us all belly laugh, to Priyanka Chopra reminding us about our self-worth, to Elizabeth Day unpicking how failure ultimately led to her greatest success. And of course, who could forget Dame Emma Thompson talking about shaving her head at university and introducing Stephen Fry to Hugh Laurie. It's been an incredible series and I cannot wait to see you all after a short break for the next series of the Radio Times podcast. If you have enjoyed this series, please do leave a review. It makes a huge difference to us here at Radio Times. And of course, if you'd like to give us feedback, write in, let us know what you enjoyed, what you didn't. You can catch us on podcast at radiotimes.com. Remember to subscribe so you can stay up to date about the return of the podcast. And in the meantime, you can listen to me every Friday alongside Caroline Frost on Smart TV for a weekly roundup of telly recommendations. Until then, thanks again and happy viewing. <laughs>